This is Reimagining Healthcare, a podcast about innovation in the healthcare industry. It's a show for healthcare business owners, for healthcare professionals, for industry investors, and health tech entrepreneurs. On the show, I talk to health tech and healthcare innovators to uncover how they're reimagining and building a world of seamless digital healthcare experiences and how that fits into people's lives. I'm your host, Yanni Sapanos. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Hu Kim Lee, an Australian child and adolescent psychiatrist specialising in video game addictions or gaming disorder. Although based in South Australia, Kim also provides telepsychiatry services for Australians up to 25 years of age. We discuss types of gaming disorders, insights into the type of gamer who is at risk, how gaming designers appeal to the types of personality traits that we each possess, how they use financial incentives to maximise gaming promotion and participation, and the potential inherent issues that can negatively impact children who are susceptible to addiction. We also explore Kim's role as a telepsychiatrist and how that helps support his area of clinical practice and the benefits to the clients he works with across Australia. Let's jump in. Well, hey, Kim, thanks for uh, making the time today and having a little bit of a chat about what you're up to. You're doing uh, some fascinating stuff uh, in and around uh, gaming disorders uh, that uh, I think most of us can relate to under a certain age, um, either at a personal level or through our children's interaction with it. So I I thought I might start off with giving you an opportunity. Tell us a little bit about um, who you are and uh, what you're doing. I'm Kim Lee. I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist. I grew up playing video games, wanted to design video games as a kid. And of course, you know, my parents being Vietnamese boat people, they were like, you got to study, you got to make sure you get good grades, become a doctor, study medicine. And I, I wanted to honestly study medicine and I managed to do that. But obviously I had to focus on my studies. But later in life, I was able to combine the two loves in my life, video games and medicine. Um, because as a junior doctor, as a resident medical officer, I came across a young patient, and this was in 2008, 10 years ago, and they were addicted to the game World of Warcraft. And because I knew about video games, I knew more about this game than my boss at the time, my consultant psychiatrist, and so I became an instant expert on this topic. That particular patient was actually suffering from anorexia, anorexia nervosa and starving their physical body. What I found out was, was that they were actually starving their avatar as well. So they weren't giving rations or potions to increase their hit points. And they were traveling through the world of Warcraft with minimal hit points. So on the one hand, they were starving their physical body. And on the other hand, they were also starving their avatar. And 10 years ago, this was just mind-blowing to me and gave me enough inspiration to go and continue specialising in psychiatry, learning about the mind, learning about how people behave in the real world and the virtual world, and having an interest in internet addiction or video game addiction. And I was very fortunate throughout my training to be given opportunities to travel to countries like Singapore, South Korea, and now I'm asked to talk on the Today Show, Current Affair, um, on 
up-to-date topics like, for example, in China now, the government are imposing a curfew for children after 10 p.m. and restricting the number of hours that they're allowed to play. Now, for the average person like yourself or average parent, you're asking how, how are they able to do this and why are they doing this? And so I'm, as a psychiatrist, able to help explain that a bit better as a preventative measure and also as a, a way to help those who are actually suffering from a video game addiction. Yeah, gosh, there's um, there's so much to to unpack with that, Kim. The idea of that one-to-one relationship between the the patient you're working with and the expression of their avatar, the way that they were actually projecting into the avatar, the way that they were relating to themselves, is that something that is consistent? Not always necessarily in a, a negative um, expression, but um, one way or the other is there sort of uh, our avatars becoming a thing where we're actually expressing uh, sort of ourselves through that. Yeah, an idealised version of ourselves, maybe a fantasy version of ourselves. I went to Singapore in 2015 to go to the internet gaming addiction clinic for teenagers, right? At that point in time as a gamer, I didn't actually believe that video game addiction was a real thing. So only through seeing these patients did I realize, hey, hang on a sec, there is a small subset of people, about 4 to 10% of gamers become truly addicted, meaning they lose control over their ability to control their gaming time and it becomes the main priority over all other activities and they continue playing despite the negative consequences. Now, when I was seeing these kids come through, uh, typically primary school age kids or teenagers, I was noticing that they could be playing the same game, but for very different reasons or playing different games for the same reason. And so in my own head, I was coming up with these, I guess, what we call player types. And funnily enough, um, because I was talking about this with every single person that I was meeting with. I was actually talking to my Uber driver. This is back in 2015. And my Uber driver goes to me. This is a Singaporean Uber driver. He goes to me, yeah, we already know that. And I'm like, who is this guy? And it turns out this guy was actually a game designer and was driving taxis, not to earn money, but to actually discuss with his passengers gaming ideas. That's very clever. And we were having this conversation and he gives me this pearl of wisdom that would have taken me years to find out. He goes to me, As a game designer, we know that people fall into four broad categories, and these are called the Bartle player types. And the Bartle player types are named after this person called Richard Bartle. He's a game designer, designed one of the earliest virtual worlds in the 1980s. So these virtual worlds didn't even have graphics. You'd literally just type in walk to the door, open door, and then the game would work that way. And by asking his players, typically his friends and his colleagues, what they were doing, why they were doing it, he coined the four player types. And so people have now expanded on those four player types and I can sit there with my patient, get them to do a questionnaire and find out whether they play for um, social reasons or achievement reasons or creativity reasons. Um, But the four original player types are these four player types. So the first one is a killer player type. 
Killer player types love to dominate. They love politics. They love to bully other players. They love to be the top dog. The next player type is the achiever player type. They also like being the best, but they are more typically based purely on competition, uh, leaderboards, getting as many points as possible, comparing themselves to other players. And the third player type is the socializer. So socializers... They like, they're like you and me. We're, we're, we're really socialized. We like talking about ideas. We like um, collaborating. We like working as a team. We like working towards uh, a greater goal uh, or just learning about, you know, digital worlds through conversation and sharing that message. And then the final player type is the explorer. So they might be people who will read walkthrough guides, manuals. They will explore through the game secrets and hacks that you can't find anywhere else on the internet you have to actually go and explore so a typical example is there's a famous youtuber who decided to just keep walking in the game minecraft forever because there was no edge to that map so the map just kept going on forever so there's a, literally a video where they're just walking and on a journey they, they get a kick out of doing that they they don't care if they're winning or losing or they just want to do things uh for the fun of it so you know, you can do little tests and find out. And I, I typically actually fall into all four player types. So I've got like a dark side. I've got sides <laughs> where I'm like, all right, I'm going to just bully this one person. Or And it's quite interesting um, talking to my own patients about their style of gameplay. Yeah, so it, it, it sounds as though that, uh, that empathy uh, that you've got through your own passion for, uh, for gaming mm. as you're growing up has uh, yep. been able to give you a perspective, a unique perspective uh, relative to Definitely. a lot of your colleagues. Uh, in the psychiatry space. Some of the research that I did around those characteristics were um, mm. something like the, the killer profile uh, mm. or, um, or player type is, is something like uh, less than 1% of uh, players, whereas the yep. socialiser is closer to 80% and the other two uh -huh. approximately 10% each or thereabouts in terms of achievers and explorers. And as you were talking, I was sort of thinking, yeah, I can kind of relate to all four of those at different points in yeah, time. Yeah. <laughs> it really sort of depends on the game. Uh, one of my favourite games um, uh, back in the day, it's still going as a franchise, is uh, Destiny. And, um, you know, it was very much a multiplayer uh, game. And, um, yeah, but occasionally you get that sort of uh, that killer profile come in and mm. it really disrupted the energy uh, for yep. the team, but mostly the yep. team was there to just, uh, you know, shoot the breeze a little bit and um, unwind and, you know, achieve yeah, some things great. together and support each other and have a bit of a laugh and what have you. And I suppose that's that's been more the positive side, you know. Over the years, uh, gaming has sort of been coming up anecdotally as being problematic um, mm. at a social level, but then, you know, most of the uh, mainstream response to it has been, no, no, you can't get addicted to gaming. It's, you know, it's sort of a pushback. But then, but that's actually not the case for a small percentage of people, as as you're pointing out, as uh, there are people who, are, who um, it takes over and it starts to be a real problem for them. That's what you've been finding through your own research? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, just organically through, so I work for a local cam service and also do telepsychiatry. But even when GPs are referring young people with, say, for example, social phobia, they're not leaving the house or not going to school, you ask them what they're doing all day and they might be online, they might be playing video games all day. And the research that did come out of uh, Singapore is that there is a relationship between 
social competence, anxiety, depression, and video gaming time. So if you play more video games, you're more likely to get more anxious, more depressed. And if you actually reduce your video gaming time, your anxiety and depression symptoms can also improve and get better. So it's really about striking that balance and understanding your gaming patterns. And if you have difficulty controlling your gaming time, then it might be worthwhile speaking to a specialist in that area or going online. And um, there's lots of free resources out there. There's a platform called Game Quitters, uh, and I'm good friends and colleagues with the founder of Game Quitters, uh, Cam Adair from Canada. He has a free online platform which offers a three-month or 90-day detox and many of the users of game critters they're actually young adults who are old enough to develop some insight that their video game use is actually hazardous and they want help the problem is when i'm seeing some of these children they're like i don't have a problem you guys are the problem or I don't care about my future. All I care about is the gaming. And so that's when it's really tough. It's really tough, not just as a parent, but as a clinician. It's like, how am I going to help a young person who doesn't necessarily want to help themselves? Yeah, I, I think a lot of people could relate to that in some way. So you're, you're doing uh, telepsychiatry, and so that's delivered via an online or digital medium or modality. Yes. Tell us what got you into that uh, and how did, how did you make the decision to actually start extending um, mm. your service through uh, telehealth or using a uh, video consultation framework to be able to achieve that? Uh, when I got my consultant specialist uh, letters about three or four years ago, I just finished my training in Sydney and I came back to Adelaide to work to be closer to my family and I was lucky enough to get a full-time consultant position as a child as a psychiatrist in the local CAM service. Um, so I've been doing that for, you know, three, four years now. And earlier this year, I actually went part-time. It's very high pressure. And, you know, financially, I was doing okay. And I thought to myself, uh, why not go part-time? Because I've got, you know, my passion for stand-up comedy. And uh, I was doing the Adelaide Fringe at the time. And I uh, had some time off and I said, after the Adelaide Fringe, I'll go part-time. And on LinkedIn, I got a LinkedIn advertisement message from Call to Mind saying that they're looking for uh, psychiatrists and recruiting psychiatrists to work for their telepsychiatry platform. And, and I'd done telepsych consultations before, but I wasn't aware that there was a specific Medicare item number that would help families in rural areas access uh, private help and do it bulk build. So for me, that was a really good opportunity to go part time, but also have the choice of working uh, if I wanted to in my days off. So normally on a Monday, I'm not uh, on my CAMS job, but I I could be seeing a patient right now and. Um, they would be completely bulk billed through the Medicare item number. So I think that, for me, uh, provides 
a unique opportunity, especially with my interest with internet gaming disorder in that the word is slowly getting out, not just in Adelaide, but across the nation in terms of this problem. And the funny thing is, is that it's not just kids that live in the metro urban areas that are having this problem. It's the kids also in the countryside who have limited access to other activities. And if they've got a half decent internet connection, they can have all their needs met in a video game. They can have friends, they can have a sense of purpose, they can have daily challenges and uh, a sense of progression and objectives and um, really get a dopamine hit, this sense of reward that they're achieving something and that they're good at something. So the myth that it's only a problem for city kids is, is really um, uh, incorrect. It's anyone with an internet connection can potentially have an internet gaming problem. Yeah, it certainly stands to reason uh, statistically as well because uh, it is a global platform, uh, gaming that is, and mm -hmm. um, even though um, some of the purists really love the PC gaming world, uh, the majors mm. in terms of, um, you know, the Xboxes and the Playstations and the Nintendos and what have you um, attract really big audiences. And so you've got you've got your yeah. either yourself or your family members who are actually interacting with an almost seemingly unlimited pool of gamers who at yeah. any time of the day there's somebody available to be able to game with. And notwithstanding that little groupings form around uh, more ceremonial and ritualised um, activities within the gaming world, it's really endless, isn't it? It's almost um, unlimited. Yeah, it's absolutely you can mm. you can go any time into the gaming world and you're going to experience um, avatars mm. of other people, some of those, yep. uh, the majority of which you won't actually personally know. That's one of the problems I had with a, a recent young person that I was treating. Uh, they, in their own mind, couldn't stop playing if they knew there was someone else that they knew from school or uh, a friend online who was still playing. They had to be the last person playing. But wow. in games like Fortnite now, where it's massively multiplayer, so 100 players at once, the chances of them being the last person standing is very minimal. So they were constantly having arguments with their parents about getting off the computer to the point where they were waking up at 5.30 in the morning playing before school and they even woke up before seeing me in the clinic. They woke up that morning to play at 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning. You're conjuring up a lot of memories of um, hearing, uh, you know, discussions with people who I was gaming with and, uh, you know, that they'd often say, oh, I've got to get off. And then an hour later, they'd still be there, you know, and um, they're always giving themselves reasons for why they'll just do that little bit more and a little bit more. And yeah. and so, you know, that kind of, you know, brings us into kind of that idea of um, the games themselves, you know, what are they mm. being built on, you know, in terms yep. of the, the science or the techniques, you know, you're talking, mm. you're referring earlier to the Singaporean Uber driver who was doing uh, UX research or market yeah. research by driving the, yep. uh, uh, the Uber. And I've talked about this um, on the podcast um, in previous episodes around user experience. How do you explain that to somebody who's not really seeing that they've, they've got a problem with um, the game? Mm. You know, do you talk to them about what the actual game developers are doing to engineer mm. their, you know, 
continuous engagement yep. with the product. Yeah. I mean, one of the examples that I use is straight from Fortnite themselves. So Fortnite's the most popular game right now. Most of my patients are playing that game. That game is making $300 million per month. Wow. And so they set aside $100 million, so nothing to them, for just pure prize money in a worldwide tournament. So when we talk to each other about, oh, did you hear this teenager won a million dollars in prize money? For them, that's free advertising. So they're, they're glamorizing playing video games. And for a lot of kids, their main motivating factor is the belief that one day they can become a famous YouTuber, they can become a famous esports player and make their money from that. So when you think about it realistically, if even comparing it to, say, the tennis circuit or the Olympic Games, the chances are against you to become an esports star because the competition is so great. It's only a handful of people who can really make a decent living from playing games. Um, in terms of the game design itself, the example I use for Fortnite is very basic. One of them is this, the battle pass. So it's a season pass. So a lot of the kids, they will get their parents' credit card and buy this battle pass for as little as $15 Australian. And this is a 10-week pass. It's essentially a contract. And in the contract, Fortnite say explicitly, it's going to take you at least 100 hours, maybe 150 hours to complete all the tasks. And this is the maximum amount of reward, in-game reward that you can earn. So this is a virtual currency. You can't exchange this currency to pay for your bills. You can't use it to exchange for food because if you were able to do that, under the Australian law, there would be aspects to the game which would be considered gambling. So that's a whole nother side of um, gaming. But in terms of just this contract, the amount of virtual currency you can earn equals $250 Australian. So I'm explaining to kids in my office, you're gonna be working $2.50 an hour with this contract. It's like going to McDonald's, hey, I wanna work for McDonald's, here's my upfront down payment, and I'm happy for you to pay me only $2.50 an hour. Now, it's really quite hard to explain to younger kids, but for some of the older kids, they do have a grasp of this, but they don't really have any real life work experience, but it links to this other paper that was published in Princeton. So Princeton University, they went through this survey called the American Time Use Survey. And this survey, what they do is they call you up, they'll call you up and say, what did you do hour by hour yesterday? And they'll categorize what you did for 24 hours. And this survey has been going on for decades. What they found out is in the last 15 years with the increase in video game technology, they found out that young men, young men in their 20s, early 20s, are spending far less time in the workforce, far less time training, far less time in university, far less time in TAFE, and they're in their parents' basement, living off their parents' food, their bills, and happily, contently playing video games. 
And so the video games have essentially mastered the art of paying minimum wage to video gamers. And this particular paper actually coined this term called the reservation wage. So the reservation wage is essentially the minimum amount of money it's going to take for you to get out of bed and work a minimum wage job. What they found out was is that through this survey is that it increases a video gamer's reservation wage. So typically if you weren't going to play any video games, your reservation wage might be $10 an hour, $15 an hour. But if you're playing video games, we're going to have to pay you more to motivate you to work that job because you're already happily content playing video games. So it's a real big issue for not just uh, Asian governments. It's, it's going to be an issue for Australia. I mean, I had this conversation this morning with a radio station about the Chinese ban or restriction for kids after 10 o'clock. So after 10 o'clock, if you're a child, you're not allowed to play video games and it's restricted to 8 a.m. So you can't play until 8 a.m. Um, the next day. And essentially, in these countries, they realize that these kids are not going to want to make the iPhones in the factories. They're not going to want to make the cheap garments and work in these factories, which China has been relying on in terms of cheap labor for their economy. In countries like South Korea and Japan, they've got aging populations and they've got industries based on technology and they realize that they're young people are not going to be working these jobs, looking after the elderly, working in companies like Samsung. So they're having to really manage and balance this industry because on the one hand, they don't want everyone to stop playing because they make so much money from it. And on the other hand, they don't want people to completely not work a day job fascinating to think about it in those terms you know most people wouldn't wouldn't think beyond their their tactical situation you know they've got uh, a child or a sibling or a family member who's uh, in their opinion is um, engaged too much you know with the gaming uh, environment that they happen to be in but when you sort of extrapolate it out like that and you look at it at a at a nation level um, the productivity yep. loss the um, detachment and disassociation from life in general day to day is it a, a predominance in um, male um, gamers or is it, uh, has that been sort of changing with um, more adoption from females going into, into gaming as well? There seems to be sort of, I guess, confusing data coming out, but the Interactive Games and Entertainment um, Association, uh, Australia, they do their own digital publishing surveys and they're saying that actually it's it's almost 50-50 now. So Yeah, I wouldn't um, be surprised more, by that. There are more and more females playing video games, but they might just say, you know, are you, have you played a game at all and tick that box? But right. I think realistically we know that it's a male-oriented, dominated space, especially competitive video gaming or uh, video games that are violent. It's predominantly males who are playing these games. But from also the Australian Health Department statistics, if you look at the combination of just internet use and video games, then actually girls are actually having more addictive problems 
with their internet use, even though boys play more video games? And the obvious answer for that is the rise of social media addiction and things like, you know, Instagram, Snapchat. Kids nowadays are constantly using it and it's interfering with their sleep. It's keeping people awake. And we know that REM sleep, that rapid eye movement sleep, those sleep phases through the night are crucial for your learning and consolidating of information that you've learned the day before. One of the many reasons I wanted to get you uh, on the show uh, was mm. that um, there are a lot of parallels. I mean, if you, if you didn't use the word gaming and you just mm -hmm. used um, tech, uh, particularly mm -hmm. technology that has a human interface, it could be the social media tools uh, that a lot of people are using these days, um, you know, whether it's Twitter or Facebook, uh, it could be uh, Google search, anything where the, uh, a human being is interacting with it and they start to um, form a um, enduring relationship with it. It seems to me to be a very consistent set of, um, let's say, principles that a lot of designers are thinking through where they're, mm. they're designing these tools to actually optimise, um, quote, unquote, engagement from people. So gaming seems to be a point of, uh, let's say, concentration where you could probably see the uh, the downside of it, you know, where somebody's uh, consuming, you know, all their life in that space, in that virtual space, for example, and they're finding it very mm. difficult to even perceive having any problem with it, you know. Mm. But the concepts, um, the concepts that we deal with in digital health terms or in health tech and just tech uh, generally are built around uh, user experience. And so we're yep. focused on what, what the experience of the human will be that's interacting with the technology. But, you know, there's a, there's a spectrum, right? It's kind of um, the principles and the science behind what helps a person have a, um, a better experience using technology is usually the same type of um, knowledge or principles that go into gaming design as well because technology is useless if human beings aren't using it. So how, mm. do, we, how do we make it usable and how do we make it enjoyable or how do we enhance mm. the experience so that uh, a person can um, engage with it and do that for productivity purposes. So I guess where I'm going with this is that um, whilst you're dealing predominantly with um, the dark side or the problem side of um, mm. overuse of technology, it can also be used for good, right? Are you also seeing mm. um, the benefit side of it as well? The whole point of it is, is that you want particular buttons on your user interface to be used for a particular purpose and that anyone, 99% of users would look at it and understand what that button is for and use that button correctly. So it's the usability. So if your button is meant to do one thing, but I think it does something else, then you've failed. With any kind of interface, whether it's your email, your social media or notifications, it has to work almost unconsciously. It has to work without you even thinking about it. And that's, and that's where probably the addictive side comes in with the notifications. So any company that uses a notification is really nagging the user to check on something and to spend more time using their platform. And as a human being, you and I, we have to check. We, they're, they're essentially exploiting that, that side. Of, so Core Plus is, um, I guess, um, ethical in that way in that you don't really send me all these unnecessary notifications. You haven't inbuilt it, even though you know you could do that to keep us 
using your platform, but it, that wouldn't work in your business model. But in terms of social media, Facebook, Instagram, it is in their business model. It's in their best interests. In broad terms, are there effective therapies to support gamers to you know enjoy consumption of the gaming entertainment? Look, uh, wherever I go, whether it's in Asia, the Americas, Europe, the key factor in the end is going to be a period of abstinence because uh, the University of Adelaide and Flinders University actually did an interesting study with using just an 84-hour protocol. So what they did was they had a group of volunteers. They asked them to give their passwords to their games Friday midday, and they didn't give the passwords back till Monday midday, so 84 hours. What they found out was is that in that brief period of abstinence from games, your negative cognitions, so the negative thoughts that you believe with regards to your game are things like, oh, my teammates, they need me. I need to play to feel better. I'm only good at the game and nothing else. Those negative ways of thinking actually reduce. And then your time down the track at one week and four week follow-up actually reduce also. Now, to get long-term behavioral change, you're going to be looking at, for a serious gamer, three months or 90 days without a particular game to really let go of that. And I've, I've actually been through similar cold turkeys in the past with um, games like Pokemon Go. I was playing that game for over a year and I realized it was not really doing me anything, you know, giving me any more joy, but I was playing out of habit. And even in that three-month period, the game designers know that people are leaving the game naturally. So it's called the churn. And as a video game designer, you want to minimize the churn. And if someone churns out of a game or a service, you want to entice them back in with a deal or a new item or a new event. And within that three-month period of me going cold turkey, there were some major events that were released in the game. And guess who were the people to notify me? It was my teammates. Yeah. My teammates had my social media contacts. They were nagging on behalf of Pokemon Go. So it wasn't just the notifications that I get. It was actually my teammates. So to cut off my teammates, people that I would actually meet up face-to-face with in a park or in a car park or at a poker stop somewhere in Adelaide, these were people that I met face-to-face. And I knew stories about their personal lives, what, what, what kind of work they did. I was saying to them, I'm sorry, but this life of video gaming with you guys on our smartphones is dead to me and I need to say goodbye to you. And so for a lot of people, you know, they're having to make some quite serious decisions with their future in mind, their personal relationships in mind, their well-being in mind, and, and it's not an easy decision to make. But there are treatments like cognitive behaviour therapy, CBT, which are designed specifically to counter some of these negative cognitions and to help with this need, this um, preoccupation and craving to play. 
Um, and and when I work with young people, I'm trying to do a thorough assessment and then coming up with a formulation which essentially explains, so not just to me and their referring GP, but to the patients themselves, their parents, about why this kid at this particular point in time is spending all their time playing video games and not doing much else. And then we look at what are the alternatives. Can we involve them in some other positive activity? Is there some way that the parents can better communicate with their child and look at the problem from a holistic point of view? I think it's probably a a good segue to just talk about the telehealth um, extension, you know, to be able to connect with people anywhere in Australia you know, using making making their ability to get access to um, to mm. yourself and and some of your colleagues uh, in it uh, call to mind, uh, and in the uh, telehealth space, that's a really powerful medium to be able to um, sort of overcome any physical um, barriers or limitations for somebody to yeah. be able to get access to you, and presumably yeah. for people around the um, the patient, uh, you know, mm. their their uh, their family, their carers or people that they're activating to be able to support them through the process is, um, are you finding mm. that, um, compared to your sort of in clinic approach, how's the telehealth really, um, stood out or, or made a, made a difference in your experience? Australia is such a massive continent. It's not just a country, it's a continent and everyone is, you know, mainly concentrated in the urban areas, but for the important people doing the important work out in the rural centers, they're doing it tough and having limited access to -to face-to-face help. And for some of these families, they would otherwise have to drive hundreds of kilometers when the price of petrol is, you know, $1.60, $2 per liter, and having to get away from their often farms to go and seek help. And, you know, there's no one else gonna look after their farms for them. Um, so in that sense, it's a real valuable resource, which unfortunately, from my understanding, that particular item number for telepsychiatry for rural patients is being reviewed and the recommendation is actually to take that away. So that's going to affect thousands of families around Australia and affect the way uh, specialists like myself and allied health professionals, the way they're going to be working, because there's a whole community of clinicians who have tailored for their own well-being. And I think for me, it's a, it's a very personal choice to work remotely because I have a busy life that involves a lot of traveling and other interests. So the telepsychiatry actually helps me with my own well-being because otherwise I'd be tied down to a physical location and often for some specialists they might be stuck in a public service job that they're unhappy with and yet you don't want to lose that sense of security in an environment where there's a lot of pressure on us. There's, there's, there's simply not enough clinicians. It's a really good point. Um, and then you sort of think about the logistical issues and, you know, as you pointed out, the cost of petrol, fuel, wear and tear, the uh, convenience to the, um, the person who's in need of the healthcare. And, yep. um, and, and rather than just support the item number, which will continue to provide access 
Um, it's more uh, aligned to a positive encounter and experience because it's accessible and it's usable and it's um, uh, mm. it's at the convenience of the uh, individual needing the care. Mm. So it, it never ceases to amaze me and I hope that they don't withdraw that. I certainly remember though from uh, uh, prior to uh, Core Plus, uh, I was involved in a teleradiology startup and um, it was really interesting uh, just some of the challenges there with uh, practitioners, uh, radiologists who were working for one organisation and um, and so that was a one-to-one relationship um, in that uh, they uh, had a contract, they had to attend that, um, it was built around a sort of that employment uh, type of arrangement and, um, you know, at the time there was a, a call-out fee for um, for the radiologist to come into right. the emergency room at you know three a.m. and do a and do a read uh, as it was yeah, called yeah, at the yeah. time, um, and so uh, in part there there was a subset of radiologists who were resistant to teleradiology because um, it was perceived to be more lucrative to actually just mm. get called out. However, the ones that really got it uh, really understood that um, you know they could actually balance their own uh, professional lives and their uh, other interests. Uh, much mm. more conveniently, and they were able to actually extend their uh, services to different um, health providers globally. And so they were able to actually, uh, you know, not just have a one-to-one relationship with an employer, but actually have a one-to-many relationship with different communities that needed their their services. So it was kind of, mm. um, it was a real revelation. This was sort of in the early, mid-2000s, by the way. It was a very, very early days for, yep. uh, for telehealth. But I think it is a bit of a journey, but um, certainly the ability for Australians, I know from a digital health standpoint, I, I believe that telehealth is absolutely essential and it should be at a minimum an arrow in the quiver for most uh, health providers, if not a, um, uh, a more substantial part of their uh, clinical area of uh, practice. Mm. So I guess I might just uh, um, finish up, Kim, with one last question. I'd like to ask, you know, what's the world going to look like, you know, in five to ten years' time? How do you see it being reimagined in the context of uh, telehealth or perhaps any other areas that you're seeing emerging at the moment? Yeah, I mean, there's two extremes that I can see. Um, You and I will just be sitting in a pod with virtual reality headsets and doing everything from the comfort of our own homes and never having to leave our homes and earning money and feeling satisfied and feeling as though we've got a sense of purpose and um, living our best lives online. The alternative is, is that we start to understand the potential negative effects of digital technology and learn how to master the technology or design them better where we can actually interact with them and say no to them when we want to and and have a sense of control and really make the physical world that we live in, the land that we rely on for the food and the air that we need to breathe and the water that we drink and look after that and make the physical world a better place. I know it's very um, idealistic of me to think of in that way, but uh, really we're going to have to make a lot of these decisions for the greater good rather than the immediate rewards and um, think about the world for future generations, not just our own. I think in terms of look, thinking of, uh, as a child and adolescent psychiatrist, we're going to have to think about the kids of the future and how we're going to raise them. Um, and I think the kids that are going to be successful in the future are the ones who can come up with great ideas, think of and plan a way to implement those ideas and stick to the plan and not be distracted by our devices and our 
social media that's nagging us or our teammates that are nagging us to veer off from whatever goal that we might have for ourselves. So I think that's uh, very exciting. As much as I'm passionate about the digital realm, um, I certainly don't uh, think that it should replace the real world. I think it needs to have a much more harmonious uh, relationship and not dominate or overcome it. But it should should add value. It should be an extension where it's convenient and value-adding to do so. But otherwise, we should should retain our sense of community and be able to interact with with each other as uh, human beings first and foremost and then use the tools and the tech to actually um, be able to extend the utility of that service. Kim, thanks so much for uh, making the time today. I really appreciate that. No, thanks for having me. It's great fun. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced in collaboration with Health Tech X, where we are working toward a world of integrated digital health empowerment for all people. If you'd like more info on how to get involved, head over to the website, healthtechx.com.au. Or if you have any feedback about the show, you can reach out to me directly on LinkedIn, Instagram, or email by following the links in this episode's show notes. And finally, don't forget to subscribe to Reimagining Healthcare in your podcast app. And if you like what you heard, leave us a five-star review. It really helps other people find the show. I'm your host, Yanni Sopanos, and I'll speak to you in our next episode.